Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. There's this wonderful moment in Camus' plague where one of the, the characters in, in that remarkable book imagines the plague as a person. And every day as I record this show, I'm increasingly thinking of the COVID-19 pandemic as a kind of person. And one question that's coming to mind increasingly as we see the narrative of this catastrophe unfold is, is whether or not the pandemic distinguishes between people, between men and women, between blacks and whites. Is the pandemic racist, perhaps? Uh, one guy who has some interesting ideas on this is um, Peniel Joseph. He's a distinguished professor of American history at the University of Texas at Austin and the author of a very, very important book about uh, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, The Sword and the Shield. So, Peniel, to start off with a simple, easy question, is COVID-19 racist? I'd say, Andrew, that the impact of it Yes, it has been racist. Uh, we've seen the racial disparities in both the people who have died. Uh, I'm thinking of places like Albany, Georgia, where Dr. King marched in 1961 and 62, 200 miles southwest of Atlanta. There's been 125 African-Americans who've died from COVID-19. Over 1,500 have been diagnosed and tested positive. Uh, there was a point where in Richmond, Virginia, all the positive COVID-19 tests were African-Americans. Uh, we've seen in Detroit, Michigan, a disproportionate number of African-Americans uh, being killed by COVID-19, uh, Latinx folks as well. And there's been about 29 states that have released the racial data. And there's a COVID-19 racial data tracker that your listeners can access online that is sponsored by the Anti-Racist Center at uh, American University and uh, Professor Ibram Kendi. And so what we're seeing is the racial disparities everywhere where we've, we've had different public health authorities statewide and municipally release racial data. So we don't have a complete 50 state racial data set, let alone um, the, the hundreds and thousands of local municipalities, but we're seeing disproportionately African-Americans are suffering uh, from COVID-19 and they've, they're disproportionately dying from COVID-19. You lay this out very well also in a, in a CNN piece that you published uh, uh, on May 6th entitled, The Pandemic is Putting America's Civil Rights Legacy at Risk. So the obvious question, Peniel, is why? Is, is, is there something in the virus itself or is it the uh, the, the actions or lack of actions of the government, which is resulting in African-Americans suffering so much more than, than whites? You know, it's a combination. And I would add, it's not just the government and the pandemic itself. It's really uh, the supply chain of different democratic institutions, both public and private. And what COVID-19 has done is amplify 
pre-existing disparities. But that amplification is forcing all of us, irrespective of color, irrespective of race and stature, to be disabused of our illusions of racial and economic progress. So what we're seeing in the United States is that despite the progress of the 1950s and 1960s, a period of time I call the heroic period of the civil rights movement, from the Brown desegregation decision of May 17, 1954, that desegregated American public schools, to the Voting Rights Act of August 6, 1965, that provided African Americans with citizenship rights at long last. Uh, despite that progress, what we've seen with COVID 19 is that there are archipelagos of racial progress, bubbles of racial success and racial justice, uh, even bubbles uh, of interracial bonhomie and rapprochement in the United States. But this is set up against a searing racial wilderness of injustice. And uh, we've seen Police brutalize African-Americans who are not wearing masks, not social distancing, treating white Americans much differently. Um, Mm. We've seen all kinds of disparities in how Black people are being treated, including African-Americans who are public-facing workers. They are on the front lines in terms of health care, both in hospitals and home health aides, but also grocery stores, UPS, Amazon, delivery services, restaurants. And that's where you get Latinx folks, too, who are being disproportionately diagnosed with COVID. And we've even seen reports of Native Americans on reservations being disproportionately uh, uh, diagnosed with COVID-19. So this is a real catastrophe, but it's a catastrophe that's amplifying pre-existing disparities and pre-existing inequities. But I think in that way, it's forcing us all to see what are the racial consequences of this pre-existing inequity that we see in the United States. I've also heard a lot of people arguing that uh, if if these people demonstrating in places like Michigan and California, uh, wearing all their, their military equipment and storming, storming uh, state legislatures, if they were black, the dogs would the dogs and the cannons would be turned on them. There's no way they'd get away with the kind of liberties that they're that they're getting away with today. Is that fair, do you think? Absolutely. I think that what we've seen with the protests, especially against Michigan's female governor, Gretchen Whitmer, Whitmer uh, really with the militias, this is very similar to the nineteenth century, not just the nineteen fifties and sixties and the Klan and massive resistance against racial integration of public schools and neighborhoods, but really the late 19th century American reconstruction, where we had reconstruction governments that were biracial governments, uh, literally and figuratively terrorized by white militia men, uh, not all in sheets. So in places like Texas and places like South Carolina, North Carolina, Mississippi, they had uh, shotgun policies where they attacked this very idea of interracial democracy and government was perceived as the enemy, right? And so when we think about what we're seeing now, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it often rhymes and you see these echoes, these echoes of the past. And so COVID-19 has really, um, again, amplified these pre-existing disparities, but it's also unleashed a further insurgency of American xenophobia and American uh, racism um, in the sense that we see these these anti-government militias 
uh, really doing these provocative demonstrations and really accusing a government of really um, trying to tamp down the economy on purpose and this idea that COVID-19 is some kind of hoax, right? And so this is an incredibly dangerous time, but it's important for all of us to understand the way in which race is shaping uh, even people's willingness to accept that the virus actually exists and race is shaping the way in which people are reacting and responding to the government's uh, response and really state governments, state by state. You're seeing different responses from people in red versus blue states and city by city, we're seeing different responses from people who live in red versus blue municipalities. Some people might say, Peniel, listening to you, well, he's a scholar of, of American racism, so he would say that. And America now has had an African-American president, and there are many African-American members of uh, Congress, of, of the Senate and the House of Representatives, many, many or some at least African-American governors and state and, and, and politicians in the state legislature. Surely things have changed. We're not back in the in the dark days of the 1950s, are we? For some people, we are. So I would actually concede that there has been racial progress, but it's like I stated earlier, it becomes racial progress from who, for whom? So Barack Obama's uh, and Michelle Obama, the progress they've made is extraordinary. Uh, Oprah Winfrey and, and you know Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods. I mean, so Robert F. Smith, the, 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 the billionaire private equity, uh, a magnet. So there, there's absolutely racial progress. It's just that that success doesn't suddenly um, reverberate to ordinary African Americans. And we can see that through not just things like mass incarceration, but also things just like high unemployment rates. African Americans are only about a little less than 20% have jobs that allow them to telecommute uh, during this COVID-19 pandemic so they can be safe and you can homeschool and telecommute and continue to have an income. They're more likely to um, um, be mortgage insecure. They're more likely to be renters than owners. They're more likely to be food insecure. Um, they're more likely to disproportionately be in prison and in jails where COVID-19 uh, has been spreading like wildfire, including those who are in the money bail or cash bail system, Andrew, where they've not been charged with anything, but they can't be released uh, because they haven't paid uh, the bail at places like Rikers Island and other places right here in Texas. So what we're seeing is not that there's no racial progress, but the extent of the progress that we extrapolate from narratives like the Obamas, um, really it's been hyperbolically overblown. You know, like we, we, we extrapolate from LeBron James, uh, Michelle Obama, these people who are otherworldly talented and successful, Jay-Z and Beyonce, and we say, look, if they're on the Grammys or accepting Oscars, things must be okay. And that's not true because in the United States, there's 42, 44 million African-Americans. And when we look at the data, um, for most of them, they're living very, very harsh lives. And for a, a nice sizable percentage, uh, they're living below the poverty line. They're disproportionately incarcerated. And we call it the achievement gap. But like my friend Ibram Kendi says, it's really an opportunity gap where uh, there are these gaps between the rhetoric of American democracy and the reality, especially for African-Americans. Peniel, 
how do we separate the ch- the chicken and the egg, the, the the chicken of inequality and the egg of of race? Because everything you're saying is, of course, true about the architecture of American capitalism. But uh, African Americans are getting the virus more than white people because they have tougher jobs, because they're poorer, not because they're black. Uh, and vice versa. How do we separate those two? How do we rethink American capitalism so that it isn't so in itself racist? Yeah, and I think that's a great question. I think that I would say that they have those jobs predominantly disproportionately because they're black. And that does have to do with American capitalism. The big word that scholars use is racial capitalism. And that's this idea that when we think about capitalism historically, really from Jamestown, Virginia, 1619 to the present, and we think about the New York Times, the 1619 project about racial slavery, that capitalism has always been racialized. It has racialized and commodified black bodies um, and exploited them, not just during antebellum slavery, but up until the present day. So from that perspective, um, it isn't a fair shake. You know, African-Americans have less of an opportunity to get access to business. They have less of an opportunity to get the quality education that you need to be connected and in the game when you think about high finance or Silicon Valley or private equity or hedge funds, or just to be an entrepreneur, right? And so uh, capitalism has been um, not just unequal uh, for, for African-Americans, it's really been catastrophic for most of them. There are some who've actually, um, caught the tiger by the tail. And even with these massive impediments, and I'm thinking of these figures we just named, they've managed to become unbelievably successful. But there's a reason why African-Americans are less than 2% when we think about corporate America and C-level, C-suite jobs. There's a reason why African-Americans are really going to be much less than um, three and two percent of getting access to VC and hedge funds and and getting access to um, the ways in which you build wealth in the United States. Uh, African-Americans are disproportionately underrepresented, uh, not just in investments and being in the stock market, but also as traders and brokers and be part of the mechanism of high finance and making and creating wealth in this country. Uh, and that's that's historic, and it's really less about the behavior of Black people, but more about the rules of the game and how these structures have been set up. Um, and I might add, one of the most um, confounding things about all this is the way in which Black people's very behavior is often blamed as a substitute for talking about the structures of inequality. So we say, it's your fault for how you're behaving but really your behavior is being shaped by the structures and the limits on what you can aspire to uh, in this society. Peniel, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, um, your last book was entitled The Sword and the Shield, uh, the, the Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Listening to what you just said, I'm guessing that you think Malcolm is, is, is a more relevant thinker, perhaps, for the early part of the 21st century than Martin Luther King. Is that fair? No, I think they're both radical and revolutionary. And I think one of the things that I, um, one of the things that I argue in this book is that too often we set ourselves up thinking that you have to be Team Malcolm and Team Martin. And most young people, uh, young revolutionaries, whether they're Black Lives Matter 
or, or, or March for Our Lives or Me Too would say that Malcolm is the more rebellious figure, the person who inspires the Black Panthers, and that King is the more conciliatory figure. But one of the things I argue in this dual biography is that when you braid their lives together, you see, one, they have much more in common than we usually think, and two, they are um, dual sides of the same revolutionary core, uh, where Malcolm is talking about radical dignity, King is talking about radical citizenship. Initially, they are adversaries and confrontational with each other, even though they only meet once. By the end of their lives, they really understand that you need that radical dignity and citizenship if you're going to have a social justice movement and a human rights movement that can transform the living conditions of, of Black people around the world. But they also were folks who were interested in universal justice for everyone, but just they were after a universality through the particular experiences and particular lens of, of, of Black people in the United States and globally. If we could bring these, these two guys back to life, which would be amazing, <laughs> what, what do you think they'd be surprised with about America in 2020? And uh, what do you think they would say both to America and specifically to the African-American community in terms of confronting and fixing today's inequities? I think they would be surprised by the dramatic juxtapositions of one, somebody like Barack Obama being in the White House for eight years, and the fact that that happened uh, you know, in the early part of the 21st century, but then juxtaposed by um, the incarceration of, of so many African-American men and women, police brutality, police violence. Uh, I think they also would have been disappointed in the evolution of the so-called third world in Africa and the, the, the age of decolonization. When they were alive, it looked like Africa and the third world may develop into a much more powerful political and moral force and ethical force um, and global economic force in the world. Uh, that uh, sadly has not turned out to be the case when you think about it. Um, so, so I we think got, they, uh, so we, instead of getting Marcus Garvey, we got Jay-Z, right? <laughs> So we got we well well Jay Z is actually an entrepreneur who's interested in social justice, but we we definitely got something much different. So I think that they would be surprised at both the high points of success, but the way in which the inequality they were protesting against how it further became amplified into the 21st century. I think in terms of solutions, I think both of them were interested in organizing, educating, and agitating. So I think the 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 opportunity that, that COVID-19, the opportunity that we are presented with in the context of the pandemic and the crisis is to really, in a granular way, Andrew, understand the depth and the breadth of the challenges we face. I think South Africa is instructive in this. After apartheid, they had these truth and reconciliation co committees where they wanted to get the stories and the narratives of what actually had happened during apartheid so that they could understand the full depth and breadth of the trauma, but they could try to um, resolve that trauma too through both public policy, but also um, a communal rapprochement, a coming together as a society. And certainly we need both as well. I think King is extraordinary because he wanted to change hearts and minds, and he was interested in public policy. And I think Malcolm X is extraordinary in how deeply committed and candid he is in his truth telling, he he doesn't um, he doesn't resist speaking truth to power, even when it makes him unpopular 
in certain contexts. And I think that's something we have to embrace in, in our own context. We can, yes, talk about progress that has been made, where it's been made, but we understand and we can feel it all around us, the depth and breadth of the inequality and really get to the core of why is that happening. And that's connected to capitalism. It's connected to our political system. It's connected to structures and institutions. But yes, we also need to change hearts and minds in the 21st century. So King had it right, but as did Malcolm. You need to change hearts and minds, but you also need to be a bold truth teller. And you have to combine all of that with deep uh, and structural policy changes and transformations. Finally, Penela, uh, obviously everyone should read your book, The Sword and the Shield. What else should people be reading or rereading in the crisis to make sense of the the color line in, in, in the COVID-19 world? Might they might they reread Malcolm or MLK or maybe reread someone like uh, uh, Marcus Garvey and his anger at the world? I would say the best book right now to read for, for your readers in this context is the... Um, it's a bestseller too, uh, and he's a friend of mine, Ibram X. Kendi, and he would be great to have on your show. Uh, and the book is How to Be an Anti-Racist. He's a National Book Award winner for Stamps from the Beginning, but this is a accessible, it's part memoir, part analysis, and it really lets us think about these issues of race, issues of class, issues of gender, um, and justice in, in, in deep and invigorating ways. Um, and so I would say that. And it, it, we really all should be thinking about being anti-racist, not just saying that you're not a racist, but being anti-racist. And I think that's there's there's a difference. And I think it's an extraordinary book and a call to charge, call to action for all of us to be proactive in defeating racism, not just in the United States, but globally. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.